Thank you. Well, once again, I think you've been welcome now, but welcome again. And uh, if you're here, uh, having come over the Easter period and enjoyed and joined in with our Easter celebrations and you thought you'd try us out on a normal Sunday, well, I'm particularly pleased to see you. And uh, I just want to say two words to you. Welcome home. And that's the heart of the Father, to welcome you home. And so greetings and uh, welcome home. And we hope that whatever else happens this morning, that you will have that sense of of just being embraced by the Father's love. That's our heart and our prayer for you. Um, forgive me uh, for even mentioning this, but um, I actually, on Thursday afternoon, uh, had to go home at three in the afternoon with a serious case of man flu. And um, I've been on the couch for two days with man flu. And you know what man flu is? It's one of the words, oh, some of you do. Oh my gosh, it's terrible, it really is. But I, I have got this chest virus thing, and I've been feeling pretty rough. So if I'm not as energetic, or if I lose my train of thought in the middle of my talk, then uh, be gentle with me, and just put it down to the dreaded man flu. Let's pray. I need, uh, I need God's help to share what I'm going to share. Father, I want to say thank you to you for your presence here. Thank you that we are free to worship you, and thank you that the, the truth that is... Um, that is contained in that worship that we've sung already to you. And Lord, I pray that um, in spite of uh, lower energy levels, I pray, Lord God, that, that in all that I say and all that I do, that, Lord God, I, I will be effective and that there will be fruit in, in your word because your word has life inherent in it. So thank you, Lord, and thank you for your presence now. And please, dear God, just breathe on this word and use it as you so wish. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, in the uh, mini-series that we did over the Easter period, it was called The Runners, uh, we used some video clips, which I know a number of you uh, remarked that you enjoyed, and I thought we would kind of finish, we would start where we, we left off last Sunday, being Easter Sunday. So let's just begin with the final video clip uh, of last Sunday, which will lead us into what I have to share today. Thank you, Matt. This is not the end. And the fact that we're gathered here today in St. Albans, Hertfordshire, in the 21st century tells you that it was not the end when Jesus died on that cross, that something extraordinary happened, and it galvanized the early church. Terrified though they were of being arrested and sent to the cross themselves, something extraordinary happened that provided the power, the impetus, the passion to carry this message of good news to the four corners of the earth, and we're in the benefit of that today. For us, though, we have a decision, and that's, that's now. The, the choice is ours. Before, we had no choice. We were actually doomed, but, but now we have a choice. We can choose life. And I've been thinking a little bit about that this week. I've been thinking about the consequences of Jesus' death and resurrection and how that impacts me and how that impacts us and society and, and how, as, as, for, for myself, as an evangelist, as one who shares the good news of Jesus and has that great honor and privilege, how I present that. And as I was thinking about that, I, I recognized that one of the things, and you may have heard this, you may not have heard this, but one of the things that evangelists are inclined to say is ask Jesus into your heart. Ask Jesus into your heart. I personally don't use that language, but it's very common, and if you've been a Christian for more than 10 minutes, you will have heard it or, or heard of it. Ask Jesus into your heart. And I have a problem with it, I'll be honest with you. 
I have an, a problem with that expression because it's, it's really as if we're treating Jesus as the guest, the guest. Now, let's just think about that expression for a moment. Now, when I was a boy, uh, my mother occasionally would invite people into our home. Uh, she was from a working-class family and um, brought up in Smethwick, and they did life on the street in the back-to-backs. You didn't really come into people's homes, though. Everything happened on the doorstep. You know, the kids were disciplined, the kids were washed, the washing was hung across the street. It was literally, as you've seen it, almost as a caricature. That's how she was raised. And so we didn't really invite people into our home, but occasionally, because she became more middle class as she married my father and as we, were, as we came along and as the family grew, so we began to invite people into our home, but it was always a big thing when we had a guest. My mother used to buy cream cakes and they would go on the side in the kitchen with a little doily over the top. And my sister and I used to stand in the kitchen looking at these cream cakes, wondering whether we dare stick our finger in, whether she'd into the cream on the top, and whether she'd notice. And we knew she would, so we didn't. And then there were all sorts of new rules and regulations. She'd say, now, don't use that towel. That's for the guests. Or don't use that soap. That's the guest's soap. Or don't do this, don't do that. And then when the guest arrived, they'd be shown into the front room. They'd be sat down, and they'd be waited on hand and foot. And, and, you know, hopefully it was a, a good occasion. And eventually the guest would leave. And at that point, my sister and I, Tilly her name is, we knew that that was our cue. Because we could go into the kitchen and if there were any cream cakes left on the side, we could have them. And then the fights and the squabbling began. You know, the last chop to declare or something like that. And my mother would often, she wasn't a great smoker, but I, do, I, I see her even now in my mind's eye. She would go into the back parlor and she would sit down and she would light a cigarette and, and kick her shoes off, and, and, and everybody, if it had gone well, would glow. It had been a good visit. Even in this day and age, when you have guests come for a weekend, you know, you prepare the, the spare bedroom, you, you, know, you, you prepare a few meals, you, you maybe decide to go for a walk in the park, and you, know, you plan a little time, but eventually the guest goes. The problem with it, delightful though it all is, is that having a guest or being a guest is not the way we do life. It's us at our best, them on, on their best behavior. You know, they kick off their shoes when they come in. They politely hang in the kitchen doorway and say, is there anything I can do to help? Oh, no, okay. It, it's, it's lovely. It's great. It's, it's being hospitable, but it isn't life. And the trouble with an expression like invite Jesus into your heart is it's about inviting him in on our terms. It's about having him come in, into our life. We invite him to, to visit, to you know, hang out in the guest room of our heart. And, and we'll make polite conversation from time to time. That is not the way of scripture. And actually, it's something that right from the very early days of the church, the early church leaders and apostles were, were keen to try and address. So, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture here. We're going to look at a fair amount of Scripture. I'm not going to um, labor it too much, but we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to chapter 2, verse 10. And we'll, it'll come up on the screen. If you've got a Bible, please follow. If you're following on the Blackberry, all well and good. If you need a Bible, please ask at the front desk. We'd be delighted to give you one. So let's, let's begin this then. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Paul says... I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. What Paul is doing here, excuse me, I have a little cough. <coughs> what Paul is doing here is he's writing to the church in Ephesus. You know, let's get this clear. The church in Ephesus was huge. Um, estimates run at around about 25,000. Ephesus, and you may have visited it even today in Turkey, is an extraordinary place. It stands at multiple crossroads, the old silk route goes through there. In, 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 its, in its day, it was a huge hubbub, a, a metropolitan city, a mega city. It was a place where cultures came together, where ideas were exchanged, where, where they went off to far-flung places. And the Christian church did extraordinarily well there. Phyllis and I, whilst on holiday in Turkey some years ago, we, we visited it on a day trip. And, and one of the things I noticed was the, the Christian graffiti all over the place. All over the place, there's little fishes are, are being are carved in, 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 the, in the stone there and, and, and crosses and all the rest of it. The Christians did famously well in Ephesus. So Paul is writing to the Ephesians, but he knows also that because of the nature of the place, whatever he sends there will go to the far-flung corners of, of Christendom as it was then. And he wants to get this out because he has a concern. He wants the church of Jesus Christ to be worshipping the real Jesus. The real Jesus. And the real Jesus is, is as he has begun to explain here. He's not some you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He, he's, he is the ruler of the universe. In, a, in our last service, we had some prophetic words, and one lady said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's credit from Scripture. Jesus is the beginning and the end, the last word. Jesus has been raised up. And according to this passage, where is Jesus now? Jesus isn't in you know, the, the penthouse suite in heaven. He isn't in the sort of the winner's enclosure, like the Grand National yesterday. Jesus is on the throne of heaven. His point being is that Jesus is God, no less. Jesus, this one that we worship, this one that we've invited into our heart to stay in the guest room, is God. And he really wants the Christians in Ephesus to say, look, look who you're worshiping here. None other than the Alpha and the Omega. You know, I pray, he says, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, opened up to see this. Know who it is who we serve. So that's the first thing that Paul wants to, to communicate here. The second thing is our condition, the, the real us, if you like, the real us. Let's just read this through. This makes hard reading, but don't worry, it'll get better in just a few moments. Chapter 2, Paul says, As for you, 
You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. In some versions, it talks about following the flesh. Following the flesh. And, and that's not just sort of being promiscuous or you know, follow, you know, immoral behavior. The word flesh in the Greek is sarks. S-A-R-X in, in, in our Aramaic um, alphabet. Sarks. And, and what sarks is, it's, it's an all-encompassing alternative deity. It's a god, the ruler of this world, who is diametrically in opposition and opposed to the kingdom of God. It's not so, so when Paul talks about you know, this kind of behavior he's, and being followers and pursuing our flesh and our self-interest, he's doing more than that. He's saying, you are serving another god. That's where we all were, he says. We were all in that place. And as such, you were objects of wrath. Objects, not even subjects, objects of wrath. I've used the term when I've spoken on this passage before that, that I talk of crash test dummies. You know what I mean, crash test dummies? These, these uh, creatures, the, these models, mannequins that are the same weight, the same shape, they limbs function the same way. Uh, okay, they don't look particularly human. They usually have some sort of extraordinary sort of graphic on the side of their head, like a, like a target or something like that. But their whole purpose and the end of their existence is when they get propelled against some concrete block and in some sort of test center. And we are, as it were, without Christ, we, are, we have one destiny, and that is destruction. Because we are servants of another God. We are servants of, of, of one that is opposed to Christ. And so Paul holds these two things before us. It's going to get better in a minute. Hold, hang on there with me. But he says, you know, on the one hand, on the one hand, there is Christ, the risen Savior, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord of all. Know who it is you now serve, the King of glory. And then also know what you were. This is how close a shave you've had. This is how you, where you have been, destined for destruction. And then it goes on, our real destiny. This is the wonderful truth that is inherent in the gospel. Verse 4, chapter 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sin. Stone dead. The motivation here is not because we've done well or we're trying hard or we're nice people or we've been misunderstood or we've been victims or life hasn't turned out for the way that we thought it should do. None of that. The motivation here for this destiny is that God is love. And out of his great love and his great kindness, he has reached out to us. Let's go on. It gets better says, it is by grace you have been saved. We sung that, didn't we? And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I preached on this many times. 
But just think about that for a moment, please. Where are we? Where is, what is our destiny? When we go to heaven, actually, we're not going to be shown into the guest room. We're not going to be feeling like outsiders who are there and having to be on our best behavior. You know, uh, I've had those moments. That we, you see them in movies from time to time. I've, I've been in, you know, I, I remember once uh, my family were on holiday. It was when I was a kid, and we went to Pontins in uh, Bracklesham Bay in, in Suffolk. And my dad had a free pass because he'd done some work for Fred Pontin, the old Mr. Fred Pontin who ran these things. And we had this free pass, and we were playing table tennis, um, and we accidentally... I accidentally trod on the, tennis, the table tennis ball. Now, how much is a table tennis ball? Like 10p or something, 20p, 50p. Well, this turned out to be a major thing. My parents were mortified. They said, what have you done? You've trodden on the flipping table tennis ball. It's flat. So he takes it into the loo, and he, my father is kind of running hot water on it, hoping it's going to expand. You know. And it feels like an, it's an international incident. You feel like Third World War's going to break out. It was totally irrational, but we were on our best behavior. We weren't supposed to be there. It was a freebie. And I had trodden on the table tennis ball. So after a while, my father had to go to the, sort of, uh, you know, the sports hall manager and say, I'm terribly sorry. My son, at least I think he's my son. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure he may have just come in with me. Um, my son trod on the table tennis ball. And the, what did the sports centre manager say? Yeah, well, whatever, fine, happens all the time. But for my family, we, we felt awkward. My, fa- my father and mother were clearly very embarrassed by this. Why? Because we were on our best behaviour. We weren't feeling at home. When we go to heaven, we're not going to be there on long sufferance. We're not going to be shown into the guest wing and wonder what we're supposed to do next. The scriptures say that because of the completeness of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross on our behalf, we are now not guests, we are sons and daughters. And our place in heaven is with him on the throne. Got it? This isn't preacher's blarney, this is the book. This is an extraordinary thing. So Christ is so much bigger than we think. We are so much more depraved than we think. But our future is far more extraordinary than we think or imagine. And and Paul goes on to give a reason, a rationale for this. Verse 7, he says, this is going to take place. You're going to be raised up and you're going to be seated with God himself as children, as sons and daughters. Not servants, not friends, not best mates, but as kids, family. Verse 7, he says, this will happen in order that in the coming ages, in the coming ages, and of course you know the implication of that, this life is just the foyer. We've yet to go through the double doors into the real, the real gig. This is just a place of preparation. But how we, how we receive and prepare and view the future life in this foyer will determine where we are seated or our destination on the other side of the double doors. <laughs> Paul says, this is going to happen, this incredible privilege, this position of reigning and ruling with Christ, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace 
expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. People will see us on the throne of heaven and say, my gosh, isn't that Chris Lane up there? Wow! And they won't say, Chris has done well, hasn't he? Oh, my goodness, you know, done rather well for himself. They won't say that. What they'll say is, what a God. I know Chris Lane, flipping neck. He's been shown extraordinary kindness. And this is how God gets glory. It's the measure of our depravity when in, in the light of God's extraordinary sovereignty and the way he's able to cleanse us up and gather us up and place us with him. That's going to bring God glory, not us. And Paul emphasizes that point. He goes on and says, for it is by grace, it's a gift that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, your best intentions or all the rest of it. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, but we are God's workmanship. You and I are God's little project. God's project. He's at work on us and in us, and please God through us. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in heaven for us for to do. To do. Those of you who've been through the Mosaic series, we began it shortly after Christmas and ran it down to Easter, rethinking community. Uh, we made a number of points along the way, but we ended up in that place where we say, we are a people with a purpose. The church of Jesus Christ is here for a reason. You and I may be here today because we have a particular need or we need some wisdom or we need something from God. We, we may have a, our own agenda. You know, we may have sickness in our life, our body, our family. We, we, we may have concerns about the future, about our, uh, our jobs and all these other things. And these, there's nothing wrong with that. That's all part of it. But the main thing, the principal thing, the purpose thing is to make Christ known is to work together as the body of Christ to make Christ known, to bring him, him this glory ahead of time, to tell people what is on God's heart, what, is, what this, this great destiny is because of Christ. And, and, and so often Christ is misrepresented. But actually what the church is called to do is to lay down its life and to put aside its own agenda in order to pursue Christ and his agenda. And that brings me full circle to my opening comment, the evangelist question, you know, do you want to receive Jesus into your heart? Invite him into your life now. I don't like it. I don't think it's theologically correct because we just become, we, we just allow God in into part of our life. You know, one of the troubles of being on a couch for two and a half days is, is, is that, you know, you get bored of the telly, you read your magazine three times, and I tend to start buying things on eBay. <laughs> and uh, I bought, while I was on eBay, wait for it, I bought a shooting stick umbrella. Now, you know what that is? It's a, it's a walking stick which you open out and you can sit on it, but it's also got an umbrella on it. And I saw that, and I thought, I can see you all sniggering, giggling. Don't hide it, I can see, I know, I know, I know. I bought this thing because I thought, oh yes, Chris Lane, man about town, what he needs is a shooting stick umbrella. <laughs> I needed this accessory to complete me, to make me whole, to make me 
present that sort of persona that I want to present when I'm wherever I am, you know, <laughs> down at Aldi's or something like that, you know. Anyway, I felt I needed this accessory, so I got a bit of pocket money, so I bought it. Not a problem there. My wife, when she finds out, she said, you bought what? She said to me, you're like an old codger. <laughs> Boy, that cut. Like an old codger. Where's the respect in that? I was so disgruntled, I decided not to tell her. I'd bought a Panama hat as well. <laughs> you know, shooting stick, Panama hat. I thought, very smart, you know. This is just trivial. These are tr I know what they are. They're just trivial accessories. I had too much time on my hand, and I thought, well, I why not? I'll buy myself a shooting stick and a Panama hat. The trouble is, you see, if I'm not careful, I see my Christian faith in that light. I, I want to be something, you know, there's a bit of a hole in my life. I want to live out a hole. I, I want to I sort of be the best person I can be. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll invite Jesus into my life. I've got a bit of a, a hole there, a guest room. He can stay in that. You see, it's not like that. Oh, my gosh, it's so off beam. See, the reality, the reality is, is that the risen Christ invites us to share in his life. Not we invite him to share our life. Yeah, I go to the club on Thursdays, the golf club on Saturdays, I go to church on Sunday morning, yeah, join me. You know, I'd like, I'd like to have you along. It's a completely different starting point. Completely different. You know, one of the things I loved uh, about the baptisms, we had a couple, some baptisms a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago, is, is just the power of the thing, the imagery of the thing. And Christians have always said this about baptisms. You know, there is a violence about baptism. You know, the scriptures talk about, you know, being, you know, dying to self, not inviting Jesus into the guest room of your heart, but dying to self. And then rising as a new man, being born again. Now that's language I love. And we're born into the life of Christ, not into the life of Chris with the accessory Jesus. And too many Christians today are doing the latter rather than the former. We are doing the life of Chris with the accessory Jesus. Fill in your own name. The reality is, we die to that old self, that depraved self, that crash test dummy. We die to that, and we rise to a new life. We had some great photographs taken at the, the baptism, and I asked uh, Adam Dickens, who's a photographer, member of our congregation here, uh, and my wife is just to put them together because they are, there's something extraordinarily powerful about baptism. And, and these pictures, just, uh, just enjoy these with me for a moment before I wrap up. Thank you, guys. See, there's nothing tidy about that. There's something messy about it. It's like real birth. It's a messy business. And there's blood and there's fluid and there's exertion because there's people being born again. And the risen Christ stands in our midst and invites us to choose life. Not on our terms. Oh Jesus, yes, please come into my heart. 
but on his terms. Here is my heart. You can have it all. It's a totally different experience. Totally different. My prayer for us is that we will be a community of believers who are not just sugar sweet and nice, but are radically saved. Who understand that the old self has died and we're called to live the new. Who will make the sacrifices necessary to make Christ known. Let's pray together. Let's have the, the worship team come up and we'll finish. Let's just stand. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord Jesus, We've heard this morning, this afternoon, that you, Lord God, reign in heaven, that there is no authority above you, no name above you, that all things are subject to you. You, Lord God, are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And Lord God, we were once lost. We were dead in our sin. We followed. We followed another God. Lord, we were objects of wrath. But Father, in your great love, your loving kindness and mercy, you have rescued us. You have raised us. And now we will reign with you as sons and daughters the glory of Jesus, the glory of your name. And so thank you, Lord God. And may we be a radical community that lives the new life in Christ, not Christ's new life in us. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord. And everyone said, <coughs>